Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newham, and this will be the first of four episodes on topics related to hand surgery. Today we're talking about nerve compression syndromes. We'll discuss some specific nerve compression syndromes like carpal tunnel syndrome, but we'll also go over some features that are common to all of them, helping to give you a better understanding of what causes them, how they're diagnosed, and how they're treated. And we'll include what can be done about prevention. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead you can use it to gain insight, whether you are planning a procedure or you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. You may not realize that hand surgery is included within the very diverse training a plastic surgeon goes through, falling into the reconstructive category rather than cosmetic. Although there certainly are some aesthetic procedures that can be done to improve the look of aging hands, but that's not really what we're talking about here. It's amazing the level of complexity that the hand holds in terms of intricate anatomy and specialized function. It's a brilliant, efficient setup and anyone who takes the time to truly study it is usually fascinated, myself included. Hand surgery can actually be a division of plastic surgery or orthopedic surgery or even general surgery. Beyond the basic training, an extra hand surgery fellowship or training year can be undertaken to facilitate being able to provide the most specialized surgery of the hand. In fact, the fellowship in hand and microsurgery that I did after my plastic surgery residency served me very well in this regard. So that's why we'll devote some time to the hand during this second season of the Plastic Surgery Decoded podcast. This current episode, number 26, will be the first of four episodes dedicated to interesting hand surgery topics, which are likely to impact the everyday person. Now, our first hand episode involves a category of problems which have plagued many people, and likely someone you know, if not you yourself. And that is the realm of nerve compression, such as carpal tunnel syndrome. Before we dig into the heart of this topic, it will help you to have a little background information about our nervous system. A streamlined way of thinking about the human body's nervous system is that it has two different types of circuitry, though of course they are both related to each other. One is the central nervous system, which includes the brain and spinal cord, and the other is the peripheral nervous system, which involves connections from the spinal cord to the rest of the body, including arms and legs. The word peripheral means outer boundary or circuit, as opposed to central. And it's that peripheral nervous system which is the star of our talk today. So, for a very simple way of thinking about it, the peripheral nerves that connect from the spinal cord out to the body are like electrical cables. These peripheral nerves help us either to sense and feel or to move. Yes, the nerve fibers generally specialize into being one or the other, sensory or motor. A motor nerve starts out at the level of the spine and travels all the way down to insert into the target muscle that needs to move, and it delivers the electrical pulse that results in the muscle contracting to produce movement. For the sensory nerves, the current is essentially going the other direction. The sensory nerves in the skin of the hands and fingers, for example, pick up stimulation from the outside environment, then transmit signals back to the spinal cord and then ultimately to the brain. 
You can think of the brain as kind of like central command, and the peripheral nerves are like soldier pathways going out to body parts to enact the brain's instruction, like muscle movement. Then their counterparts come back to report to the brain what was sensed or felt from the environment, for example. The spinal cord is the middleman. Most nerves pass through it on their way to and from the brain. The nerves destined for the arms, hands, and fingers originate from the spinal cord at the level of the neck, also known as the cervical level, and those for the legs and feet come from the low back area of the spinal cord. Though for this episode, we're focusing only on the upper extremities rather than the legs because this is the typical region a plastic surgeon might treat. Now, as the nerves travel from the neck level out to the hand, they pass under and around and through various ligaments, muscles, and tissues that create a tunnel-like environment. These tissues also serve to protect the nerve. But over time, sometimes these structures can start to rub on or pinch the nerve. And again, a nerve is a very sensitive live wire, if you will. Any situation where a nerve is pressed on is called compression, logically. And this compression can make the nerve be irritated, which can reduce the nerve's ability to perform its function. That might translate as numbness or tingling you feel in the fingers if it's a sensory nerve, or weakness if it's a muscle or motor nerve. Also, a protective signal of pain can be triggered. There are three main peripheral nerves in the upper extremity, called the median, ulnar, and radial nerves. And at some point, they will each carry both sensory and motor fibers. These nerves have to travel a long distance from the neck to get to the hand and fingers, so there are many spots where each nerve can get into trouble and become pinched. If this happens time after time, repeatedly, it could lead to what's called a nerve compression syndrome. So, as I describe some of the more frequently seen nerve compression syndromes, let's start with the median nerve and its compression at the wrist, producing by far the most common nerve compression syndrome in the upper extremity, namely carpal tunnel syndrome. I'm sure you've heard of it before. The word carpal is a derivative from a Greek word meaning the wrist area. The median nerve at the level of the wrist is mostly sensory, but does contain some motor nerve fibers too. The median nerve supplies the sensation of the thumb, index, and middle fingers, and half of the ring finger. It also supplies a couple of small muscles in the hand, so there can be a weakness of the hand as a result of compression, in addition to numbness. There are about 3 million cases of carpal tunnel syndrome in the U.S. each year. Anatomically, if you looked at a cross-section of the wrist, which means if you took the forearm with the palm facing up and then theoretically cut through the wrist and looked at it end-on, you would see that the carpal tunnel is a confined channel in the wrist that is formed by a curving arc of bones at its base and a tight ligament stretched over its roof. Within this channel travel only 10 structures. Nine of these are the flexor tendons, or leaders, which bend the fingers, and the tenth is, you guessed it, the median nerve. If any swelling develops inside the carpal tunnel, such as from repetitive or excess movement and the use of tendons to work the hand, there's no place for that swelling to go. The bones have no give, and the ligament is tight and non-elastic. It has no give. So the poor median nerve in the carpal tunnel ends up getting pinched. Holding the wrist in a flexed position for an extended period of time, such as in the night while sleeping, can bring on the symptoms too. And it can kind of become a cyclical problem, meaning things might start with a little bit of swelling in the tunnel, which makes less room for structures. Therefore, more friction will occur during tendon movement. 
That increased friction creates even more inflammation and therefore more swelling, and so on. Well, carpal tunnel is not the only nerve compression syndrome involving the median nerve. Much less frequently, a different nerve compression syndrome can involve the same median nerve but higher up in the forearm. And in that situation, more motor deficits or weakness can be seen than with carpal tunnel syndrome. Next, let's talk about a second main peripheral nerve. A somewhat common area of nerve compression occurs at the inside of the elbow and is called cubital tunnel syndrome. It involves the ulnar, U-L-N-A-R, nerve, which passes through this region. The ulnar nerve supplies the feeling to the small or pinky finger and to the other half of the ring finger. It also controls some muscles in the hand, so compression of the nerve could result in decreased ability to pinch or grip. The ulnar nerve passes through a small bony canal on the inside of the elbow, and it is vulnerable here. This is also the nerve involved when you hit your funny bone, so to speak. In this region, the ulnar nerve can be pinched or compressed by a variety of ligaments or even muscle. Sometimes this cubital tunnel syndrome comes from overuse of the elbow or from holding the elbow in a bent or flexed position for a long time, such as when working at a computer or even during sleep. Now it's important not to confuse cubital tunnel syndrome, which we're talking about right now, with the carpal tunnel syndrome we just discussed. Cubital tunnel is actually way less common than carpal tunnel syndrome. The word root cubit means elbow, and it also references a historical length of measurement from the fingertip to the elbow. Traveling past the elbow, that same nerve, the ulnar, can be compressed at the wrist level instead as it passes through a canal that sits right next to the carpal tunnel. And that canal is called Guion's Canal, G-U-Y-O-N. Yep, named after Felix Guion, who described it in the mid-1800s. The same ring and pinky fingers would have numbness, but the motor weakness pattern would be a little different than with the ulnar nerve compression at the elbow. Guion's Canal compression can be brought on for various reasons, but one which has been described commonly is repeated pressure from the handlebars of a bike rider, especially long distance. Moving on to the radial nerve, that third main peripheral nerve, compression syndromes are somewhat less common, but they do occur. When the radial nerve is acutely compressed in the upper arm, meaning from an event, such as from a displaced bone pressing on it after a fracture, or from the arm being compressed against a firm object for many hours, there can be weakness or difficulty in straightening the wrist or fingers, since these extensor muscles are the ones which the radial nerve supplies. In severe cases, there might be a wrist drop, meaning a person cannot actively lift or hold up the hand at the wrist level. And this deficit could even come from sleeping with the arm slung over a firm object all night, especially while intoxicated. So it may not surprise you that this particular scenario for nerve weakness has a colloquial name of Saturday Night Palsy, for reasons I think you can guess. But more long-standing or chronic compression syndromes can develop over time as well. Further down the arm, the radial nerve can be compressed in the forearm level, resulting in isolated motor deficits or a combination of motor and sensory deficits, depending upon which branch of the radial nerve is involved. And still further down, if it is compressed just above the wrist, it no longer has a motor component and would present with a pure sensory loss with numbness over just the back of the thumb and the index finger. That one is named Wartenberg syndrome after the person who described it. 
So yes, there is a wide variety of nerve compression syndromes, each one being different. But let's look at some of the unifying factors. For example, how do all of these nerve compressions tend to start? What's causing them? Well, that's a loaded question because there are so many contributing factors, but let's go over the most common ones. Activity. Perhaps you think of repetitive use or overuse of the hand or arm as the main cause of, say, carpal tunnel syndrome. And you would probably be right. With the extensive computer use and more automated, repetitive tasks we now have in our society, hands, wrists, and forearms are repeatedly stressed in somewhat awkward and poor ergonomic positions. So that repetitive use can create inflammation in the structures which form the tunnels through which the nerves have to pass. There can be increased swelling or development of thick inflammatory tissue on the muscles or tendons, making them more bulky. This in turn can start to create friction or pressure on the nerve, since there's not a lot of extra room in these tight areas. It's also been found that use of vibratory machinery or tools can contribute to nerve compression syndromes, like carpal tunnel syndrome, because prolonged exposure to vibration can be very irritating to nerves. Secondly, some patients are found to have anatomical anomalies, which may contribute to nerve compression. For example, they may have a little extra muscle or ligament in a certain area that a nerve crosses, and even without overuse activity, that irregularly positioned tissue can start to cause problems over time. In addition, any abnormal growth that develops in an area near a nerve can start compressing the nerve as well. That would worsen as the growth becomes larger over time. And lastly, there could be a problem with the nerve itself. Systemic diseases such as diabetes and thyroid disease can result in fluid shifts within or near a nerve, making it irritable and more easily subject to compression or poor function. Other systemic inflammatory diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis can produce growth or clumps of inflammatory tissue near where the nerve may be traveling, so nerves can become pinched that way as well. Even pregnancy can contribute to nerve compression syndromes if there was a tendency for nerve compression to be present in the first place. In other words, the fluid shifts that a pregnant woman's body may undergo, particularly later in the pregnancy, could tip a mild case of carpal tunnel syndrome, for example, over to one that becomes quite severe and needs treatment. Often, the symptoms dissipate after delivery of the baby, but sometimes not and sometimes have to be formally treated. Before we leave our discussion of causes, I want to touch on one other phenomenon that I think is quite interesting, and that is the concept of a double crush syndrome. What is that, you might ask? Well, it's actually just what it sounds like. Remember that the three main peripheral nerves that we've talked about are essentially long electric cables that go from the spine out to the hand and fingers, typically. So that's a long enough path that it's conceivable the same nerve may be pinched in more than one place. If it's even mildly compressed in two different places along its path, those compressions can add up cumulatively to give worsened symptoms and mimic a more severe case of singular nerve compression. Fortunately, there are some diagnostic tests which can screen for this. Speaking of diagnosis, how do we diagnose a nerve compression syndrome like carpal tunnel or the others we've mentioned? Well, there are two primary ways. The first involves standard history-taking and physical exam of the patient, and the second involves a machine. In terms of the history of the problem relayed by the patient, 
there is usually a gradual onset of symptoms, which is likely to include specific numbness or weakness in the exact distribution that the peripheral nerve in question supplies. For carpal tunnel, it is commonly numbness in the thumb and next two fingers. For the ulnar nerve compressions, it is most often the last two fingers, the ring and pinky fingers. Quite often, nerve compression symptoms are experienced at night and may wake a person up. Someone may have to shake or reposition the hand and arm in order to be able to comfortably get back to sleep. During the day, the numbness may start out as intermittent, but as weeks, months, and even years pass, it may become more constant. That's usually a sign of a more long-standing nerve compression or an advanced case. And if it goes on for too long, there can be some degree of permanent nerve damage that develops. Not uncommonly, sometimes patients will describe nerve compression syndrome symptoms as a burning pain. And sometimes the discomfort is located in a different area than expected. This is called radiating pain, meaning it radiates to a distant area. For example, in the past I had numerous patients who complained of shoulder pain along with their carpal tunnel symptoms, and they never realized the two could be related. These patients were often pleasantly surprised that after their carpal tunnel surgery, their shoulder symptoms went away too. We've talked about common symptoms, and now on physical exam, the patient with any nerve compression syndrome may have a positive Tinel sign, which means that when we tap on the area where the nerve is probably compressed, the patient experiences a tingle or shock sensation due to the irritability of the nerve in that spot. Also during the exam, there are some formal tests which can be done to measure and map out the exact area of numbness of the involved fingertips. In addition on exam, there may be weakness in the specific muscles that the involved nerve supplies, and perhaps even some atrophy or wasting of the muscle, again signifying long-standing compression. Okay, beyond recording the symptoms and physical signs of nerve compression a patient may have, the physician may send the patient to get a specialized test called a nerve conduction study, or NCS, and an electromyogram, or EMG. Basically, the nerve in question is stimulated by a machine, and its reaction time downstream is recorded. If that reaction time is slowed, it can be inferred that the nerve may be compressed, and the location is often pretty accurately identified. Also, the state of the muscle function can be assessed through this machine, giving further help to the diagnostic process. Now once there is a formal diagnosis of carpal tunnel or other nerve compression, how is it treated? Well, in my practice, I like to use the stair-step approach to treatment involving three categories with increasing invasiveness as needed. First is what would be considered conservative treatment for nerve compression, and it's best for early or mild cases. That could include starting out with temporary immobilization or support of the area where the nerve is being compressed. An example would be a wrist brace for carpal tunnel syndrome to help night or even daytime symptoms, as the constant bending or flexing of the wrist contributes to more pressure on the nerve. For nerve compression of the ulnar nerve at the elbow, a soft brace to help keep the elbow from bending too much while still allowing some movement could be helpful. Additionally, Nerve gliding exercises and ergonomic teaching by a hand therapist, typically an occupational therapist, can be beneficial to patients in early stages of compression syndromes. This teaching could help the patient modify their workstation, etc., in order to reduce factors which may be contributing to the problem. And some people may take oral anti-inflammatory drugs, for example ibuprofen, to decrease swelling around the nerve. 
There are even reports that supplements, such as vitamin B or D, can be helpful for some nerve compression syndromes, though this may be true only if there is a deficiency, and findings are not consistent. Secondly, we may consider a steroid injection near the area of compression, as long as there was no risk of hitting the nerve itself. No, this is not like the anabolic steroids that some people may use to help bodybuilding. The type of steroid we're talking about here is a very powerful anti-inflammatory agent, and reducing the swelling in the area is one way to decrease pressure on the nerve. These can be quite successful, but the results are usually temporary, and symptoms typically may return once the steroid wears off over the next few weeks or months. Sure, the injection can be repeated, but only a limited number of times. Too many steroid injections can actually lead to atrophy or wasting away of the tissues in the region, or other problems. Thirdly, for more advanced cases of nerve compression, especially when numbness and weakness are constant and no longer intermittent, surgical release is the gold standard of treatment. This means releasing the ligament or other structure that is directly compressing the nerve. This surgical procedure can be done through an open incision or even through an endoscopic method, depending upon the region of concern. The hope is to permanently solve the problem, such that even if the person is still having to do a repetitive activity, there is more room now for the nerve in its bed, and it is not going to get compressed like it was before. Occasionally, a more involved procedure needs to be done, such as with cubital tunnel syndrome or ulnar nerve compression at the elbow. That nerve may need to be not only decompressed, but also transposed or repositioned into a new, more protected area, which is a bigger procedure, yet it may help prevent future problems. But all of these procedures are done in such a way to avoid causing any functional problem as best as possible. Most people can expect a nice relief of their symptoms after surgery, but it doesn't cure everyone. If a case is end-stage, meaning there has been too much permanent damage to the nerve from long-standing compression before the patient even presented for treatment, then surgery may not be able to bring function back. But it often can at least stop the problem from continuing to get worse. And that's something. Usually all of these are outpatient procedures, meaning the patient would go home on the same day, though someone else would need to drive them, of course. And many can be done either while the patient is awake or asleep. Often the involved body part would be placed in a temporary splint for a week or two to avoid nerve irritation and rest it, again depending upon the specific area involved. Sutures or stitches typically come out in one to two weeks, and activity needs to be restricted long enough for adequate healing. This again is quite variable and depends both on the location of the specific nerve that was decompressed, how involved the surgery was, and the surgeon's personal recommendations. In many cases, some postoperative hand therapy or at least hand therapy instructions would be provided in order to maximize a speedy and functional recovery. But again, for larger procedures, recovery may take longer. In terms of surgical success rate, there is natural variability, of course, but it's generally quite good if the problem can be caught in time. For example, carpal tunnel surgery is usually quoted as being greater than 90% successful. Outcomes for peripheral nerve surgery depend on the severity of the nerve compression, how long-standing the problem has been, and whether or not there were signs of permanent damage detected prior to surgery, such as with the nerve conduction study or EMG. For a standard carpal tunnel procedure, symptom relief is often immediate which is satisfying both for the patient and the surgeon. We want you to do well. 
but in situations where presentation for treatment or the treatment itself has been delayed, then there may be a long and perhaps incomplete nerve recovery for some. It's possible you may not really know for several months what level of success will be obtained as the nerve may take that long to recover itself. Complications of surgery are relatively rare, but risks might include infection, bleeding, nerve or tendon injury, worsening pain or functional deficit, recurrence of compression from development of internal scar tissue, and possible requirement for further surgery. Well, what about prevention? As you can imagine, it's almost impossible to fully predict or prevent medical problems, and nerve compressions fall into this category. But like anything, vigilance is key. It's smart to pay attention to ergonomics when you're at work or play, especially if you're starting to have symptoms of pain or numbness. A visit with the hand therapist can be quite beneficial, even early on, to evaluate your body mechanics, to make some specific workstation recommendations, and perhaps to teach you some nerve gliding exercises. But if you start to have noticeable numbness, tingling, weakness, or pain in the upper extremities, don't ignore it. Please check in with your physician. Rest assured, there are many things that can be done early on to try to help avoid future surgery. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded. Thank you.